Hello and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Dan Washburn. In early March, China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs announced that it would expel American journalists working for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. The move was in apparent retaliation for an earlier decision by the American government to limit the number of Chinese journalists in the United States. It marked a significant milestone in the deteriorating relationship between the two countries. One of the journalists forced to leave China was the Post Jerry Schur. Since joining the paper in 2018, Schur's reporting stood out for its focus on the lives of ordinary people in China. In recognition of his work, Schur was awarded Asia Society's 2020 Osborne Elliott Prize for Excellence in Journalism on Asia, joining a select group of some of the world's best writers and editors over the last two decades. In this episode, we're going to hear a conversation between Schur, who is now based in Seoul, and Marcus Broccoli, former executive editor of The Post and the jury chair for this year's Oz Elliott Prize. Broccoli begins the discussion by asking Schur how the expulsion of American reporters will affect our understanding of what's going on in China. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, there will certainly be a, a huge loss uh, for, I think, you know, readers, uh, not just in the U.S., but across the world. Um, in fact, I think, uh, you know, it's we often hear from um, the Chinese um, uh, ordinary people, even Chinese officials, that they often turn to to international news sources to get sort of a, a relatively unvarnished view of what's happening inside their own country. Um, I think that... Um, Let's take the example of one of the, the stories that I did um, uh, last year. Um, I went down to, to Jiangsu province um, in the wake of a, a large uh, chemical explosion that killed, that killed scores of people. Um, I was in a, uh, a, a very kind of um, poor village that was just a couple of hundred meters away from the blast site. That was basically a crater that was... Uh, you know, a quarter mile wide. Um, and uh, the villagers uh, at first, they very tentatively sort of um, began to talk to me, to tell me about the experience of sort of living for decades in the shadow of this uh, basically a ticking time bomb. Uh, in the middle of the conversation, one of the villagers suddenly said, um, hey, you know, so, so who did you say you work for again? And I said, well, you know, I, I, I work for the, the Beijing Bureau of the Washington Post, where an American newspaper uh, can, you know, can't really dance around that. Um, and then she said, well, how do we know that you are um, not here to smear us and make China look bad and write about all this negative news? Um, and then somebody else in the, in, the, in the group said, hey, listen, if, if, if this guy doesn't write the story, if we don't tell him our story, um, do you really think that the Jiangsu official newspaper or, or the local city newspaper, they're going to accurately tell, tell our story? And then everybody else in the circle said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what he said is right. We, you know, we, 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 we should trust and talk to this guy. And, and so I think, you know, from, from the ordinary people to the Chinese um, scholars, academics, uh, think tank types, government officials that I run into, um, you know, on a, on, a, on a daily basis, or I ran into on a daily basis, I should say, I think there is still a tremendous desire, um, despite all the, 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 the tensions and, and, and the sort of the chill that we're living in today and between the U.S. and China, there, there's a great, great desire to 
interface to engage, to get the story out, to have that exchange of ideas. And, and, um, and so, yeah, uh, you know, long way of saying that I, 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 I do really regret this, um, you know, especially at this moment when, when there's a, a global crisis uh, and, and public health emergency unfolding. Yeah. Well, clearly the, the, the mutual understanding element of, of journalism is critical um, because it creates, a, it creates some, you know, factual foundations for understanding, which probably leads to greater stability. But how much those, those people you see in China, do they have access to, will they ever see what you write? How much of what American journalists write gets recirculated in China? How much of it gets around the so-called Great Firewall? Um, that's a, um, a, a very interesting and I think um, a, sort of an, an urgent um, question. Um, as you might know, as many people might know, um, uh, many, many uh, of the international uh, news outlets are now blocked inside China. Um, so that includes everything from the New York Times and Bloomberg about beginning about a decade now ago. Uh, the Washington Post, The Guardian, uh, the BBC, uh, the list goes on, basically any major sort of uh, American or, or British outlet that you can think of. Um, China, of course, has a very tightly uh, controlled uh, and tightly censored um, uh, media ecosystem um, that largely revolves around uh, the, the social media platform WeChat. Um, and I think that um, in order for the, the Chinese um, to access the internet, they need a certain degree of uh, technical savvy. They need to be able to download a special software called virtual private networks to get around uh, this censorship um, the, uh, apparatus, uh, which is commonly called the Great Firewall. Um, using this software can carry uh, risks, it can lead to arrests, um, and police are increasingly um, enforcing uh, these, these uh, punishments against users. Um, and I think the, the, um, the, the, the implications of that are, are pretty far-reaching. Um, I, I think we are sort of increasingly living in a world where the populations of the two most powerful countries on Earth are consuming wildly, vastly different media diets. Um, it's kind of almost an international uh, parallel to, to what you might see in, in terms of the political polarization in the United States between uh, the left and the right and, and sort of the, the news that they consume and, and how that shapes their thinking. Um, and so, you know, if you were to look at international coverage of the protests in Hong Kong in this past year, um, you would have seen something that was vastly different from how it was portrayed inside China. And as a result, I think, you know, you would have seen um, a, a, a tremendous amount of, of nationalism uh, inside China, people sort of really rallying around the government to condemn the protests as violent rioters. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I worry a lot actually about the, the, the depths of this uh, information divide. Um, I, I think that, you know, today, especially, um, the, the Chinese government has grown increasingly sophisticated at how it conducts what it calls public opinion guidance. So for every major news event, um, you know, there are not only state media articles, but also a, a, a flurry of social media articles that also sort of gently nudge uh, public opinion in a certain direction. Um, that's now spread overseas. And 
you know, as, as we've seen uh, one of the most uh, popular uh, social media accounts actually in the last couple of years has been what's uh, this account on WeChat called College Daily for overseas Chinese students often studying in the U.S. Uh, this was started by a couple of uh, college students uh, who had interned at um, Western companies uh, like Cisco and accountancy firms. Uh, and, but, but they you know, put up a lot of content every day that toes the party line um, including sort of, uh, you know, a very, very, um, how, how should I say, very, very, um, uh, it, it basically disinformation um, during the height of the Hong Kong protests last year. Um, and I think that certainly has an effect on uh, the Chinese um, population, not only inside China, inside the Great Firewall, but also around the world. So that observation triggers a couple of questions. The first is, you know, going back to um, how people in China are using VPNs to see foreign information. Um, first question, do you think that the Chinese government took the opportunity to expel these American journalists because of concerns that their information is, is flowing back into China? Or do you think it was more in response to the U.S. government's decision to restrict the access, severely restrict the access of Chinese so-called state media organizations like CGTN and Xinhua in the U.S., which I think was the, which was the sort of official explanation, but which, based on what you've just said now, you can understand why people in foreign policy might be concerned at flows of information going back into China that are perhaps representing a Communist Party point of view as opposed to what might be described as a more factual point of view. Certainly, I think that's a that's a, it's a it's a tricky question to answer. Um, I think if we were to take the the, the broader view um, over a, a larger time period, I think um, in the last decade, China has increasingly used um, visas as a way to sort of keep uh, foreign journalists in line to to not sort of cross red lines into areas that they don't want. Uh, uh, coverage, for example, the, the, the private uh, sort of business uh, and financial interests of, this, of the top leaders. Uh, we have seen a, a growing number, I think, according to the Foreign Correspondents Club of China, uh, more than a dozen journalists have been expelled in, in, in something like the last uh, seven years, or I should say effectively expelled um, by the Chinese government when they let their visas expire, uh, effectively forcing them out. Um, so, you know, we, of course, uh, had one instance um, last year uh, when the Chinese government uh, expelled a Wall Street Journal reporter who was involved in a story about uh, a relative of President Xi Jinping. Um, fast forward, uh, we have, I, you know, I, I, I can say that the, the immediate trigger of the expulsion of the dozen or so from the American newspapers stemmed from the U.S., uh, move to um, sharply limit the number of visas that, that Chinese state media outlets could have um, from about 160 down to 100. Um, and so certainly there's an element of, of, the, of the tit and tat. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it takes two to tango, let's put it that way. And, and since then, in the last couple of weeks, uh, the, the U.S., uh, the Trump administration has continued to hit back um, with uh, more um, uh, basically uh, quite onerous 
restrictions on Chinese journalists uh, who, who want to seek visas. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I think the overall trend in China domestically has been a gradual tightening of the media. They've taken a much more assertive and, and, and sort of um, kind of a, a, a pugnacious um, attitude towards the foreign media. Um, at the same time, I think they've encountered a party, uh, a counterparty in, in the Trump administration that seems more than willing to sort of trade blows on, on this um, on, on, on this issue that um, I think many journalists, um, including foreign correspondents and myself in China would, would, would see as, a, as basically a race to the bottom, that, that this can't have a good outcome for anybody. How difficult, how onerous was it to cover China pre-COVID? And, and how did it change? I'd be interested just sort of in your, in your career trajectory, when you, you first came to China and how, how things have changed for journalists in that time. Uh, sure. I, I first arrived in, in 2014. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that I, um, you know, missed those, uh, those golden years of the 80s, like, you know, we were just talking to, to, to Dinda about, um, of, of sort of that, you know, opening, that, that blossoming. I think that in the early 2000s, there was also a great amount of, um, a, a, a great amount of, um, of, of, of openness and blogging. Um, of course, you know, in the 1990s, after Tiananmen, foreign journalists, whenever, they couldn't even leave Beijing, right? So basically, you had a shadow, kind of a tail with you physically all the time. Um, in the 2010s, when I arrived, we never had that. Um, but, you know, I, I think surveillance through electronic means has been pervasive, um, who might express a frustration with think, how things are going. But as the, as the political climate in China, I think, becomes more tightly controlled, um, they're also you know, much more cautious. And in terms of the mechanics of reporting in China, um, like I said, uh, with the sort of the, the, the rise of um, WeChat, um, you know, I, I, I hear stories of correspondents before my generation who would duck into restaurants to uh, borrow a phone to call of their source. And, and there's little things that you can do sort of in the cat and mouse game that every China correspondent sort of, you know, picks up. Um, and, and today that's just so much more difficult. You know, I've had instances where uh, because WeChat, which is um, a software program that, that's, you know, very closely monitored, um, it, because it's so ubiquitous and you have no, really no other way of reaching somebody uh, other than that, that software, uh, you know, sometimes you might call um, somebody mm -hmm. who, who wants to talk to you, wants to give you information, and then an hour later, they get a call from the local police. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's always tricky. So the, this expulsion of journalists came basically amid this COVID crisis. And COVID, as some people in the U.S. like to point out, originated in China. Um, and there was a period of time when information about COVID was murky at best and, and suppressed clearly by the government. What, is the, what has been the role of foreign journalists? What was what the impact of foreign journalists in covering this particular crisis, especially at the beginning when, when information was, when the government was not being as forthcoming as it probably should have been with information about what was happening in Wuhan? I think that the, 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 having the, an independent foreign media was, was tremendously important. Um, you know, uh, th there were um, 
in fact, uh, many citizens inside Wuhan who, who I've kept in touch with and, and I, you know, I, I spoke to at that time in real time who were enormously frustrated with the, the, the coverage that they were seeing in uh, China's official state media, um, you know, which was basically um, interview after interview with medical workers um, who were talking about sort of the, the, the you know, the, the, the kind of the success that they were having in, in battling the outbreak um, and not really, I think, offering a picture of, um, you know, the true scale and, and the enormity of the, the, the human tragedy and, and of this problem. Um, that said, you know, even if uh, <laughs> the, the world uh, media had reported that, it's not clear, as we later saw, that, that governments around the world would have uh, made adequate preparations and, 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 you know, really took that to heart. But I think that, you know, absent uh, that reporting, maybe our understanding of those early days uh, would have been even more limited. It looked at the beginning in January, as a reader of China coverage, that as people in China were discovering the severity of the Wuhan crisis, that the leadership was somewhat back-footed, that it was, it was looking vulnerable. It was looking like it had, it had screwed up and that people were angry both with the slowness of the response and then angry with the um, overwhelming force of the reaction when they finally shut everything down. Did, do you think it had, I mean, subsequent to that, obviously we've seen other countries, including the United States, fumble in, in their own ways. And I wonder, if, I wonder if that's been redemptive in some way for the Chinese leadership with their people or whether COVID has actually in any way hurt the Chinese leadership standing with the people? Yeah, I, you know, my, my personal analysis, I've always kind of been um, skeptical that, that this would have been the, 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 the Chernobyl moment that um, would have sort of, you know, poked holes inside the, the veneer of, of, of the Communist Party monolith and, and sort of, you know, brought everything crashing down. I think that, you know, we did see for a brief period um, an outpouring of rage and frustration, particularly around the death of the, the so-called whistleblower, Dr. Li Wenliang. Um, you know, the night that he died, I, I remember staying up in a hotel um, in eastern China in this basically totally abandoned, um, uh, you know, mega city of, of like 10 million people. Um, it, 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 the outpouring was of just, you know, unprecedented scale. Um, of, of sort of, you know, messages on social media. Uh, but of course, basically by dawn, by 6 a.m., it was completely scrubbed for the internet. Um, you couldn't really tell that anything had happened. Um, at the end of the day, nobody was able to go out into the streets to, to, and mobilize. And, you know, pretty soon after that, a um, couple of weeks after that, um, the, the, the Chinese government did indeed bring the, the domestic outbreak uh, pretty much under control. Um, President Xi went and visited Wuhan, and I think in the week since, you know, the, the Chinese government line that you know we have indeed done a, uh, a a pretty good job at bringing this outbreak under control compared to countries in Europe, especially compared to the United States, which is by and far, uh, you know, the, the biggest sort of casualty of of of, of the epidemic. Um, I think that's resonated uh, with with the Chinese people, um, combined with this sort of. Um, you know, wall-to-wall -wall, uh, propaganda and spin about um, the, the the good deeds that the ch government has done, combined with oh, look at how the outside world is blaming us 
for their own failures. I think uh, the, the, the siege mentality um, plus the, the genuine accomplishments of the Chinese government combined has been very, um, very, uh, uh, you know, has been um, very effective in, in bringing the people to rally around the government. That said, I think, you know, we do often see cracks showing among the elite levels. Uh, we see more sort of um, dissent, whether it's direct or oblique, from uh, intellectuals, from elite businessmen more than ever. And I think that, you know, if we are to see some kind of um, significant political change or reform in China uh, in the coming years, um, it's going to come from uh, those voices, that the people um, inside the elite circles of government, inside business, inside um, academia who say that, uh, you know, enough is enough with, with the sort of the, the direction, the, the totalitarian direction that things are heading in. Hi, Dan here. I'd like to take a moment to talk about Asia Society's YouTube channel, which now boasts over 170,000 subscribers. You can find the latest Asia Society programs covering the current events, policy, and culture of Asia, as well as explore our extensive library of musical performances, panel discussions, podcast episodes, and more. To join us, go to youtube.com slash asiasociety and hit subscribe. Now, let's get back to the conversation. You could elaborate on the footage of the extreme lockdown measures taken by local authorities, e.g. welding people into their apartment buildings or placing electronic sensors on people. Um, you know, how, how severe was that kind of clampdown in China? Uh, was that on the on the food supply chain, um, I guess this is a question about the U.S. thoughts on the Smithfield meatpacking plants, but that's Chinese owned. But I mean, just how, how severe was the clampdown in China during COVID? Um, you know, in places like Wuhan, um, it was absolutely severe. And in other cities uh, across the country as well. Um, I was in uh, Hangzhou um, during the, the sort of the early days of the outbreak. Uh, and I was talking to somebody there who was, um, he, he had traveled back home from outside of his province and the neighborhood committee basically escorted him back into, he and his family back into his apartment and then threw a chain around his door and then padlocked it. And so he's banging on it and he's like, guys, you, you, you can't keep me in here. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, what if, it, what if there's a fire, you know, and, and I can't get, you know, get anybody's attention. And, and, and so, you know, I, I think that um, <laughs> in many of these areas, people were, you know, deadly serious about enforcing the rules. Um, in other areas, uh, you know, it's, it kind of depends district by district. Um, you know, uh, the, 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 the neighborhood committees uh, in China, often when, when you have these sort of mass mobilization campaigns, um, you know, it's uh, everybody's kind of winging it, to be honest. It, it kind of depends on how every uh, unit um, have every sort of local organization interprets the rules. In Beijing, it was quite, um, it was quite uh, intense. I, I, I have heard of stories of friends who um, had come to Beijing and they were put into hotels uh, and given uh, electronic key cards to their doors that could only be used once. <laughs> uh, which is a pretty clever way of, right? Um, you can get out, but you can't, you know, get back into your room. So, um, 
so, so yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, it is every neighborhood across the country kind of, you know, padlocking residents inside their homes. I, I don't think so, but, but, you know, it's, it's pretty tough stuff. Yeah. I, China, my experience with China is there's always a certain among the bureaucracy, a certain enthusiasm for enforcement. Um, I used to joke that China has two modes, tolerate and repress. And they, they basically toggle between the two. Yeah, um, exactly. Someone else has asked about the, to take us in a completely new direction, but an interesting one. Um, you know, talking about the frictions between the U.S. and China, the current 5G competition and the situation around Huawei. Um, I, I guess the question is, what's your view on it? But let me elaborate on the question without knowing what the questioner's intention is, but ask, you know, the technological rivalry between the U.S. and China, as, as, as well as the trade and economic rivalry, increasingly threatens to split the world into two camps. Or this, is a, this is a great concern. And as the U.S. cuts off China from certain technologies, it forces China to build those technologies itself, which simply you know, widens the gulf. Do you think that this is where, where things are going? Are we entering a world from the economic trade technology perspective of a, a U.S. block and a China block? Yeah, 100%. I think that's the, the direction that, that things are going. Um, I, I think one piece of context um, I would add to that is that I think, you know, since ever since I, I arrived in China in 2014, I remember writing about China's efforts to sort of become um, uh, technologically uh, independent, um, not dependent on uh U.S. technology, and so at the time they were sort of, you know, strongly already beginning measures to to sort of push out um, American providers um, such as Cisco and, and Qualcomm and Microsoft through various uh, measures to sort of develop its its domestic industry, um, which they have every right, um, you know, from a national uh, industrial policy perspective um, to do uh, to, to to further their own sort of uh, national interests. Um, but I think that this process, um, in many ways, this confrontation that we're seeing in many ways um, might be almost inevitable if you look at the, the trends of where things have been, um, uh, the, the direction in which you know, things have been, have been um, unfolding in the last couple of years. Not only do I see a sort of you know, distinct spheres in terms of uh, technology, but I worry that, um, as I said earlier, uh, information uh, will become uh, sort of divided into these two kind of mutually exclusive spheres. Um, I worry that culturally there might be greater distance. Um, there is a, a growing um, sort of you know, suspicion of uh, Chinese uh, students in America, Chinese scholars and, and researchers. Um, and I think that, you know, in, in many cases, um, aside from the espionage threats, I, I think that there is, I, I, I worry that American society and Chinese society increasingly find it difficult to sort of have a conversation on, on, on many of these um, you know, major issues of global importance. Um, so aside from the internet, um, China basically had already walled itself off um, sort of 
uh, you know, 10 years ago. So we, we, that, we were already moving in that direction. Um, now it seems like technology, uh, I guess finance would be a big uh, question to see, um, you know, whether there were, whether China would take some steps to sort of extricate itself from the dollar uh, system and uh, the American uh, banking system. Um, and of course, the, the, the biggest question of all is, is, is geopolitics. Um, you know, we have in the last couple of years seen um, China gain a, a great deal of support um, and prestige internationally, uh, particularly from the developing world um, through its sort of uh, lending programs, through its um, very uh, assiduous uh, diplomacy. Um, we have also seen, I, I think it's fair to say, uh, uh, um, you know, a, 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 a very sharp pullback um, in terms of uh, U.S. standing internationally as a, as a leader and also its commitments to world organizations. Um, and so I think that is going to be a, such a major battleground now, you know, is, is, is our countries going to rally around China? Which direction is Europe going to go? Which direction is Russia going to go? Uh, the Gulf states, um, you know, sort of the, the, the chessboard is kind of laid out and, um, and, and, and it's, it's, it's kind of, um, it, it's, it's sort of, yeah, playing out and, and pretty uh, with mind blowing speed. So I, I see that trend. Um, yeah. I also see a sort of counter trend, uh, which is China has, while China is able to project a sort of unified face of China to the world, China is not unified at home. China, you know, Xi Jinping has, has failed pretty miserably to manage what you might call the peripheral populations, the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, the people of Hong Kong. And I won't, I, I wouldn't say Taiwan is even a peripheral population. It's a, a desired population. But he has these, he has these great internal frictions. And, and as your story on the, on the Hui people show, which would be interesting to talk about, the Hui are, you know, another, um, uh, Islam following minority in central China that he's not, it's not a cohesive China. He's, he's has, he has trouble holding it together. And it seems that, that she is actually having more trouble holding it together than his predecessor did. Maybe that's unfair to him, but I'd be interested to know, you know, how does that affect his ability to, to govern China and to project power in the world? Um, yeah, I think that it, it, this is such a huge issue um, that I, I kind of have some trouble wrapping my <laughs> my arms around it myself. Um, but I think that a lot of these sort of tensions and, and, and frictions that you're seeing today are kind of a, a vestige, a, a legacy of, of the Qing dynasty's um, breath, right? I mean, it, it basically stretched from... Um, you know, the middle of uh, modern Kyrgyzstan, you know, down to modern uh, day Vietnam. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, it, it itself was a sort of a foreign kind of um, uh, sort of ethnic, uh, you know, ruling caste. And so, um, you know, today China is, has, it, it's so diverse, it's so large, it has so many sort of different um, kind of, you know, cultural backgrounds and is trying to keep everything together. And, and she's kind of basic um, MO or his basic 
strategy has been to kind of do nation building through, um, uh, I think, a, a, a quite a narrow vision of, of ethno-nationalism, what it means to be Chinese. Much of that is kind of centered around, uh, of course, the, the Han uh, majority identity. Um, and so, you know, the education campaigns that he's uh, introduced in, um, in, in Xinjiang, uh, you know, the, the, the basic concept of that is to, uh, is to, is to, is to build patriotism, is to enhance um, this awareness, this sense among these people who culturally and linguistically and in terms of their sort of their phenotype are very much different from, from Han Chinese, but he's trying to sort of inculcate um, forcibly uh, the sense that you know they are Chinese, they're taught the same Chinese sort of you know uh, children's books that 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 Han Chinese elsewhere might be taught, and, and to sing the songs, to even get married wearing sort of ethnic Han um, costumes, and so so yeah, I I, I think that um, you know it's um, it, what it, it's the authoritarian I guess um, you know twist on what's actually been historically a, a, a kind of a very um, commonly seen um, tactic of, of, of nation building. You, one of your stories was fascinating story um, from across the border in, in Tajikistan, I think it was. Yeah. And you, you came across a Chinese military encampment there. How did you come to that story, if you can talk about it, and what does it tell us about China's ambitions in it's near abroad. Um, sure, I, I actually that that story um, kind of went uh, had had roots quite quite um, early. I, I think it was in two thousand sixteen um, when I uh, started to. Uh, I was working at the Associated Press at the time. Uh, my editor uh, Jillian Wong, uh, who's now at the at the New York Times, we we wanted to start looking into the issue of of Uyghurs in, in Xinjiang. She had great sources through her sort of nearly 10 years working in China. And, and um, you know, from, we, we kind of had the idea to sort of travel to, um, to Turkey um, and also Central Asia. And I think that, you know, in the, the course of my reporting um, at that time, the angle actually initially that, 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 that we were looking into was the phenomenon of Uyghur uh, militants who are leaving China through Southeast Asia to go to Turkey, to then travel into Syria to join with um, uh, sort of Al-Qaeda affiliated uh, 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 militias there. Um, during the course of that reporting, we sort of you know, met with a lot of these refugees, Uyghur refugees in Turkey, who told us about this massive, massive campaign of, of detention and re-education and basically disappearance that was unfolding inside their homeland. Um, and then sort of, you know, I guess it was out of that, um, you know, train of, of reporting that, that got me aware of not only what was happening in Xinjiang, but also what China was doing to sort of um, counter um, the, this threat of, um, of, of potential Uyghur extremism, whether it was um, Chinese military activity in Syria or this very concrete example that I was able to eventually prove um, in, in Tajikistan. And so 
the 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 the, the you know so so what, what what we basically found was that there is a um what i basically found was that, 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 that there is a chain a, a source and told me that they had seen um uh chinese soldiers in this very very remote um town in uh the the, the pamir mountains of tajikistan uh near the highest point uh in in the former soviet union um, and so I thought I would go check it out. Um, and what I had found was indeed, uh, there was a Chinese, uh, military base there. Um, and later, according to, uh, satellite imagery, we discovered that there was actually more than one. Um, and so, uh, on, I think one of my last days that I was there just kind of poking around, um, I ran into one of these guys, um, who had come into town. Um, I had already talked to some of the, uh, the locals who said, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, for the last couple of years, there's been these Chinese guys, they're, they're nice, they come into town, they, they buy water and, and potato chips and, and sort of, you know, they'll speak a couple words of Russian, but kind of leave us alone and then disappear. We have no idea what they're doing. And so I was, I thought, okay, all right, maybe I could run into one of these guys. And, and on, you know, on my last day in, in this town, I, I was just kind of walking around going to buy some water myself and boom, I run into one of these guys and, and sort of, you know, chat him up and, and he says oh you know he basically told me um you know what i wanted to know so so it was a bit of you know it was a stroke of luck but also i think you know it was rooted in um reporting that had gone back uh several years so, so i'm happy that you know something like that was able to come to fruition yeah very revealing um two last questions uh for me first is when did you decide you wanted to write about china um, I, you know, this opportunity came up, I, I, I was working at Reuters, uh, you know, in 2014, when this opportunity came up, um, I, uh, actually didn't expect to go to China at the time. Um, but, you know, I, of course, I, I speak Chinese, um, I have the language advantage, I, I'm familiar with the culture. And so I think that, you know, when, when the opportunity came up, I, I seized it. I think it's, um, uh, I, I think it's, um, you know, it, it's so central and, and, and more and more central every day um, to, 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 to uh, global events. Do you think you'll be allowed to work as a journalist in China again? I hope so. I sincerely hope so. And I think I will. Um, you know, um, uh, the, the, it, well, when I left, the, the Chinese foreign ministry said, you know, you don't blame us, blame it on the, uh, Blaming on the United States. Um, we had to kick you out. It's not personal, but we had to kick you out because they, um, sorry, um, because they uh, because they kicked out our state media reporters. Um, do I believe that one hundred percent? Not one hundred percent, but you know, I I, I suppose um, uh, you know. Should I take their word for it that you know may, there might be a day when when I'll be allowed to to go back and, and report? Um, Sure, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll hold on to that thought. That's it for this week's episode. You can subscribe to Asia In-Depth on Apple, YouTube, and Spotify, and check out past episodes by visiting our show page at asiasociety.org podcast. We want to extend our best wishes to all our listeners. Stay safe out there. We're all in this together. I'm Dan Washburn. See you next time.